Hey everyone, I'm JK, founder of Four Stripes. We're serving martial arts and jiu-jitsu community in Hong Kong and rest of Asia through unique events, training, and networking opportunities. Jiu-jitsu is our passion, but it's the people that inspire us with their life stories. You'll be the referee. Welcome to the Four Stripes Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Voon Lee. Join me as we explore the growing jiu-jitsu and grappling community in Hong Kong, Asia, and beyond as our guests share their stories, inspirations, and hard-won lessons on how to live an adventurous and fulfilling life. Today, my guest is Alex Lin. Alex is a man of many talents. He was an investment banker, a hedge fund manager, and is currently the chairman of a successful children's clothing retail chain in China. But his true passion is martial arts. Alex is the founder of DEF Group, which started life as a boxing gym but has since become one of the pioneers of jiu-jitsu in China through the expansion of the Shanghai BJJ franchise in China and in Hong Kong. Alex has an extensive background in combat sports, including Taekwondo, Kendo, boxing, Muay Thai, and jiu-jitsu. We talk about how BJJ is evolving in China, professional car racing, his thoughts on how to balance training and optimize performance as we get older, and why Stoic philosophy works as an operating system for daily life. I hope you enjoy the conversation. You, know, you you seem to have a background in, in many different kind of interests, sort of boxing, Muay Thai, Taekwondo, Kendo, car racing, mm, yeah. and obviously Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm. Was that always the case for you? Were you did you grow up this way, sort of being very interested in, in this many things, or is this accumulation over time? I think. Uh, well, I grew up in in Taipei, Taiwan, so. Um, my parents uh, had me when uh, they were studying in the States uh, and then moved back to Taiwan uh, very soon afterwards. So I basically grew up in, in Taipei and I went to an international school there. Um, so I grew up in a multilingual environment. Uh, I learned Mandarin, um, English pretty much concurrently, uh, had Taiwanese, um, spoke to my grandparents in a mixture of Taiwanese and Japanese because they were all educated in Japan. Um, and I took French when I was in high school. So I ended up having a lot of different uh, linguistic inputs. And I think that just growing up in a very um, multinational environment like that, going to international school, multilingual, uh, you're encouraged to explore a lot of different interests. So obviously the, the curriculum we had was an IB program, which I think is very similar to a lot of the, the schools out here in, in Hong Kong as well. Um, but a big part of that is to, to get well-rounded in humanities and sciences. Um, and then we're also required to learn foreign languages as well as pursue uh, extracurricular activities. And so um, for me, I, uh, I liked sports. Um, for me, the two that I did in school were uh, I ran track and field and I played soccer uh, for the school team. Um, but outside of that, I found that uh, you know, growing up, my, my parents always encouraged us to, to, to learn sort of martial arts and more traditional sort of, um, I guess, uh, Asian, <laughs> for lack of a better word, like uh, skills. And so I ended up uh, learning kendo and taekwondo when I was a kid. Um, which is which is a lot of fun. Um, later on, in high school, uh, we opened a, a boxing club uh, in my high school, and it was you know not officially sponsored by the school, but we had a coach, and then we had uh, a couple guys who were interested um, from sort of you know pretty much my grade, and so we all just kind of got together after school, and then we trained with the coach, and uh, it was very interesting, a lot of fun, and uh, for me, um, very different from playing team sports. Mm-hmm. And so you uh, and. Was, did you specialize in any particular martial art? Did you kind of go all the way through in Taekwondo or Kendo, or is that something that you... 
No, I mean, I, uh, I, no, I think I got to a blue belt in Taekwondo. I definitely wasn't you know, anywhere close to a black belt. I didn't compete. Right. Um, and then uh, sort of kendo as well. Like I'd, uh, you know, I, I went for a number of years, and it was something that my parents really wanted me to, to get more experience with and exposure to, uh, especially the, the more traditional aspects in terms of respect, um, sort of uh, discipline, and uh, you know, consistency of, of the movements, you know, because with kendo, a lot of times you can just spend the whole session just practicing one particular move and you just do it over and over and over again. But um, I think you learn a lot from that as well. Um, but I think that they wanted me to, to get exposure to that. And then uh, the boxing was a lot more live sparring and I really enjoyed the live sparring. I think you know, even to this day, sparring is probably my favorite part of any martial art. And I think it's the most expressive, most uh, creative part of that dialogue you have with your partner uh, when you guys engage in some physical activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, when I left uh, high school after I graduated, I went to the States, um, studied uh, in New York. Um, I kind of stopped all of that. It wasn't really a, a big part of my life uh, during, during college. Um, and then uh, I think uh, I graduated. I was sent to Chicago. Then from Chicago, I got sent to London. And then from London, I got sent to Hong Kong. And then in Hong Kong, um, I wanted to pick up something to get fit. And so I picked up boxing again. Mm-hmm. And started boxing regularly at a boxing gym called uh, DF Boxing, mm-hmm. which uh, back then was in uh, Centrium, the Centrium over, uh, uh, over on Upper Long Kwai Fong, mm-hmm. above uh, Dragon Eye. Right. So, uh, I so remember actually. Yeah. I did my first, maybe my only boxing lesson there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I trained there and then um, I just, and just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed getting back into that feeling of that you know, visceral sort of experience of, of training boxing, of that sort of positive uh, physical feedback from you know, mm-hmm. hitting the pads. And then, of course, that dialogue of, of live sparring. And so I uh, kind of reignited that, that sort of uh, spark. Mm. And so also off the back of that, started to do a little bit Muay Thai as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I trained with uh, different trainers uh, just to get some exposure because the, the kicking and punching, all of that, uh, you know, just kind of goes hand in hand. And, mm. and, and Muay Thai is so fascinating because if you just look at, you know, something like boxing, we're using, you know, fundamentally just, just two points of contact mm-hmm. uh, versus like Muay Thai, we have eight it just suddenly the dialogue becomes so much more multivaried mm-hmm. and uh, the movements become so much more complex. And so it's very fun. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting take on combat sports because I think you, it seems like you take a much more you know, cerebral approach in terms of your appreciation versus, I guess, what other people would say, you know, their, their typical conception of what combat sports would be about is about aggression. It's about venting of aggression. It's about domination. It's about you know, exerting your will upon somebody else. But it seems to me that's not what, uh, that what, that what's attracts you to, you know, these kind of, uh, these sports. I agree. Um, actually, so you mentioned, you know, car racing as well. And I really love downhill skiing, but I'm not really good at any of these things. So just, just, you know, to, to, to caveat everything that's being said right here, I'm not really good at Muay Thai. I'm not really good at boxing. I'm not really good at jujitsu. I'm not really good at driving. I think I'm, you're selling yourself a little not, bit short. No, but I, think I mean, you're I was, selling yourself a little I'm, bit I'm definitely, short. I'm, I'm just interested in a lot of different things. I'm more like a jack of all trades, master of none, but like, I like all of them, but you know, more as a hobbyist. So just without, you know, without trying to oversell myself as being an expert in any of these topics, I'm more of a sort of a, you know, a serious hobbyist more than anything else. So just want to put that out there first and so no one gets the wrong 
wrong idea. Um, but I think that the, the key thing about all these activities is um, to a certain degree, you're almost outside your body when you're, when you're fully engaged. Um, sort of, you're not thinking, if you're like sort of racing in a car on a circuit, you're not thinking as you enter the corner, oh, I'm right foot's on the brake, you know, I'm blipping the throttle, uh, double uh, heel towing as I'm like, you know, dipping the clutch and then like shifting from fifth to fourth to third and the second, and then I'm turning the wheel and I'm clipping the apex. You're not thinking about any of these things. Your hands are moving, your feet are dancing, you're shifting the gears, the car is moving towards the apex, but meanwhile, your mind is almost like sort of at a different level, mm. observing yourself in all of these uh, actions, thinking about, okay, um, there's a car in front of me, all right? I'm faster than him, like in the corners, like I'm just trying to catch up to him in the next corner and maybe can overlap him to pass him like on the next straight. There's a car behind me. I gotta be you know, defensive on this line because this guy's really, really fast at the end of the straights. Mm. So you're almost like thinking at a strategic level um, as your body is performing very, very complicated movements. Um, in a very debilitating environment because it's very hot inside a car. It's like, you know, 40 plus degrees centigrade and you're sweating buckets, uh, you know, and it's, it's very fast and it's very noisy. And, but you kind of filter all that out. Mm-hmm. It's very similar. Like, you know, if you're sparring and boxing, if you're uh, sparring in Muay Thai or if you're rolling with a friend, mm-hmm. you're not really thinking about, oh, my hand goes here, my foot goes here, my hips turn this way. Mm-hmm. Um, you're very frequently basically almost engaged at a at a control level where you're almost playing your body like a PlayStation mm. game and you're executing these moves while you're thinking about the next step or how to be defensive or how to be aggressive and, and it's sort of this fully immersive experience mm-hmm. where you're fully engaged in the moment as well because the, the cost of, of of being distracted if you're thinking about mm-hmm. uh, your deadline or uh, this morning like you had this bad experience in the coffee shop or like you're thinking about oh yeah like uh, your parents health or sure. you know you're worried about your kids schooling and you know you're, you can have you know your arms sort of like twisted or your neck choked or your sure. face punched in or if you're driving you could end up sort of like you know running off the track or running to the back of the car in front of you or getting past so certainly i think like that idea of um serious consequences definitely helps focus the mind right and i think uh i mean it's very interesting now especially in this space of time where we are in society you hear the word mindfulness being thrown around a lot and i think it means maybe different things to different people although sort of serious practitioners of meditation obviously have a very kind of specific uh definition to it but it's interesting the way you describe it. i've i remember my first job i remember um one of the the concepts that we are sort of put out to, I guess, clients that we were working with was this idea of being on the balcony and being on the dance floor, which is very much what you're kind of describing. Like being on the dance floor, you're participating, you're, you know, uh, engaging with whatever activity happens to be, but also have to have the, uh, the ability to basically step back and look down from a top-down level, having more strategic view, being on the balcony and seeing kind of, you know, where your interactions are going, you know, where the dance is heading, what the next step happens to be. Um, and I guess this is a natural segue for, I guess, maybe you describing how you discovered jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, because it seems like everything that you seem to appreciate about all the different hobbies and interests you have um, seem to find a kind of perfect fit within this sport of jiu-jitsu that we all do. Mm-hmm. So um, actually, it was 2012, and uh, so my office uh, was in Central, in the landmark Gloucester Tower. And I remember that uh, Epic uh, Mixed Martial Arts Gym just opened across the street uh, on Petter Street. Um, and, 
and it's very close and it's very convenient. And so I thought, oh, this is a great place. And I went to go check it out. And I said, like, wow, this place is amazing. Uh, the, uh, the facilities, actually a lot of us all started training at Epic uh, in, the, in the Hong Kong sort of jiu-jitsu scene. Although, you know, there was a scene before that. But I think um, it really did a, a big sort of like, you know, it played a big role in terms of bringing jiu-jitsu to a lot of people that otherwise would not have been exposed to it because it was quite niche before. But uh, I remember stepping in the gym. I thought, okay, I can do boxing here. I can do Muay Thai here. And, you know, they even have some yoga classes. So that's great. That's perfect. All this stuff is very interesting. Um, but then I saw they had jiu-jitsu. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting because it's something that I was interested in because uh, obviously it's a, a big part of, of martial arts, the, the grappling, the, the groundwork, uh, the submissions component. But it's not something that I've ever been exposed to. And, um, and I, had, I wasn't adverse to it. I know that there's traditionally always been... Uh, from the striking perspective, some, you know, I guess, um, how would you put it, like uh, uh, resistance to, to the efficiency of other martial arts. But I, to me, it was always, always more of a matter of exploration uh, of seeing what worked best in what situation. And I think that there's never an absolute answer. And so I thought, oh, this would be really cool. And so I took a trial class and I started practicing jujitsu on a daily basis and I got really hooked. And um, I think there was a lot of aspects to it that, exactly like you were saying, um, it encompassed a lot of the uh, the thrill, the the sort of like that sort of you know mind space that you can achieve from a very intense activity like downhill skiing, like racing a car, like boxing and Muay Thai, but uh, didn't involve as much of the logistical sort of like investment to get to sort of like a mountain to go skiing or to like, you know, get away for four or five days to, you know, set up a car, test it, you know, qualify and then race on a Sunday and then come back on the Monday that, which is like a good four or five days at least sure. of investment. Um, and I was finding that I was getting older, um, with boxing and Muay Thai. I mean, it's great to train regularly, but if you want to go a little harder, um, even like, you know, 70%, you know, 80%, you don't have to go hundred percent, but like even anything more than 60, 70%, and you'd feel it. It'd be, it'd be quite difficult to, to sort of uh, do that on a consistent basis. My body wouldn't recover as quickly, but I found jujitsu is you can go at a fairly high intensity. Um, and, uh, and you'd, you'll, you'll definitely be sore and get a great workout, but you can do that consistently. Uh, I felt that like my, my ability to recover, my ability to, to learn and not get hurt and come back and, and practice again the next day, uh, was much higher. And, uh, and that was, that was a big part of it. It's sort of adapted to, to my, my life at that period of time. Uh, and obviously just, you know, it was also something I could do at lunch, you know, leave the office, go train for an hour, hour and a half, and then get back to the office. And you know, that, that was my daily fix of, of sort of like, uh, of, of mindfulness, if you want to call it that. Sure. I mean, I think that's one of the intriguing things about jujitsu and, you know, here time and again, um, for a contact sport and for a combat sport, you know, it's hard to think of anyone that you could essentially practice at a hundred percent because all combat sports in many cases simulate, you know, real life situations, real life violent situations. Uh, and the, the purpose of training in many respects, the, the eventual outcome is to prepare yourself for those situations so that you are trained in such a way that your body and your mind is, is ready to react. In many cases, kind of react on a subconscious level, right? Um, and with jujitsu, it's interesting that you can essentially train and spar at close to 100% with, as you said, minimal consequences, if, as long as you have the right training partner, you, you have the right mindset. And so I guess a question for, for you, you know, you've certainly progressed you know, down the, the path of, of mastery in jujitsu. 
uh, how has it impacted your ability to learn? How does it, how's it taking along jujitsu? How's that kind of really changed your, you know, appreciation for what it is to learn and, and what are the best ways to, to go about doing so? I think that, um, there's a couple of elements of jujitsu specifically, which, uh, really kind of, you have to accept and embrace in order to, to learn, to learn quickly and consistently and progressively. Um, the first is, uh, is to trust, uh, to trust yourself as to trust your, uh, your partner, because like you said, um, all these simulations are basically for the purpose of, uh, dominating, submitting, or severely hurting your opponent. And, uh, and you have to trust that in this process of training that your opponent will not actually hurt you. And you have to also trust your opponent in the sense that if you have them in a bad situation, that they will tap, that they will actually yield to you and show that, uh, that the situation is one where they have to yield, otherwise there'll be serious consequences. Because if they don't, then you know, the onus, your onus can't just be on you to um, to actually know when to stop, so I think that like two way trust is uh, is one really key factor to really encourage uh, long term improvement. The other one is ego. You have to put your ego aside. Um, a big part of of not yielding, not tapping, or actually getting hurt is is tapping too late or or not not recognizing when your your body is in a situation where it actually um, uh, can be severely sort of uh, injured. And uh, by putting your ego aside and regularly uh, sort of stopping before the point of injury, uh, it means that you can train more regularly, you can train longer, and uh, less chance of injury, so you're less, you know, there's less time off the mats. And so by recognizing that fact, by uh, trusting and uh, eroding that ego aspect of, of yourself, I think that, uh, that it really helps apply to how you learn and you know, how quickly you learn and as well as how much you learn. Do you think that's more broadly applicable in life? Do you think that uh, the times, well, maybe not even just yourself, but if you, you're a manager of people as well, you observe when other people you know, do well in learning or perhaps have difficulties in learning, do you think the root cause is sometimes related to, to the ego, that they're not able to get past the, their particular issues? Absolutely. I mean, um, actually recently, I guess, uh, just to take a big step back, um, well, not so recently, I guess for the past five years, uh, I've uh, been spending a lot more time sort of in traditional industry. So after I graduated from university, uh, I was recruited to join a derivatives trading firm. And I traded derivatives in Chicago, then London, then Hong Kong. And then in Hong Kong, I joined an investment bank. Uh, and then I was at a bank for 12 years. Then I left that bank to join a hedge fund. I was at a hedge fund for six years. Uh, but about five years ago, uh, my uh, family business was going through a lot of critical changes. And my family business is in retail. We do um, uh, children's clothing and apparel, and we sell in um, China, Taiwan, as well as uh, Southeast Asia. And so as a part of those changes, uh, uh, there are a lot of issues with like e-commerce, uh, global sort of uh, competition, uh, changes to the retail landscape that were really quickly sort of like upending and disrupting uh, our traditional business. And this is a business that my father started in 1971. So it's uh, quite well established, quite, quite you know, set in its ways. And so back then I went to, uh, to China to look, take a look at where the root of a lot of the problems were and where a lot of the disruption was occurring. 
And I saw that um, with the sort of fast you know, advent and onslaught of e-commerce, uh, all these global brands coming to China to compete, um, sort of you know, rising costs um, as wages rose and rents went up. Basically, you couldn't really look at the business um, and play it as a professional manager because a professional manager is effectively paid to not lose. Right. You're, you can execute this, you know, play to not lose strategy because like the last thing you want is for the business to, to really, you know, do badly or fail on your watch. But in an environment like we were seeing in China at the time, if you execute a play to not lose strategy, you don't eventually win. You just lose a little bit later. You know, it's just slower death. You kind of have to play to win. You have to have like a, a more transformative sort of like approach to it. And my, you know, my reasoning at the time was that the only way to execute and adopt a play-to-win strategy is if you had skin in the game, had to be sort of owner-entrepreneur um, style management um, as, as opposed to professional management. And so, um, so basically, I, I gradually sort of shifted out of my role on the asset management side uh, and took on a more active role in, in sort of traditional industry and in retail, which mm-hmm. is probably one of the hardest businesses in the world and one of the hardest markets in the world. And so I guess to, you know, as a part of that, I had to travel. I had to start traveling uh, very regularly. So um, every week uh, I travel from Hong Kong to, to Shanghai. And because the company is actually uh, headquartered out of Taipei, I go to Taipei um, at least once a month, uh, twice a month as well. And so I'd spend four or five days a week on the road, Hong Kong, Taipei, Shanghai, Hong Kong. Uh, this excludes sort of international travel, so the occasional trip to New York, you know, <laughs> London, uh, wherever. And so, it's a good thing you're familiar with the grind. Yeah, but um, I, I, you know, as, as a part of that, um, I, I had a lot of time to to explore and think. And um, you know, one thing that um, two things that I really sort of like, uh, I've spent a lot of time on these past uh, four or five years, is one on sort of uh, what is your worldview and what is your system and what are the principles you want to live by. Mm-hmm. And so that, that philosophy of life, I think, is, uh, is pretty important. And the other one is, is faith. I think that having uh, some spirituality and, and, and core beliefs as to what you believe are, uh, are very important. And, uh, and having time to think about that, um, especially because if you're in transport a lot, on planes, <laughs> in cars, uh, it gives you time to, to listen and to think and to read. So that's important. And so um, one philosophy that really sort of appeals to me uh, and that I've spent some time looking at uh, is Stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Stoicism as a whole, I find, uh, really has a lot to do with the question that you were asking me about sort of how to learn, how do you observe other people learning, and how ego, you know, if ego plays a role in that. And uh, there is one aspect of Stoicism in terms of how you would need to remove some of your uh, more negative emotions to mm-hmm. control them. And also how if you look at sort of uh, life and accept that there will be difficulties, uh, but you are grateful every day uh, for what you have. And also if you can accept that difficulties will be a part of life and sometimes even invite difficulties uh, and challenges so that like you inure yourself to them. So if this is the worst thing that could happen to you, if this is your worst case scenario, if you know, your greatest fear is you know, like failure at business, mm-hmm. then sometimes you've done it and it's happened it happened and you survived and you know that, therefore it's not a fear that will continue mm-hmm. to to haunt you and uh if you apply that sort of like uh, mindset to to jiu-jitsu for example mm-hmm. um what you're doing every day 
is you're experiencing worst case situations. Sure. You're experiencing sort of a bow and arrow choke. Someone, you know, sort of you know, removing blood from your brain until you lose consciousness. Sure. Someone applying leverage to your elbow until like it, you know, it might pop, right? And, you know, and so you're experiencing these constant like states of, of worst case scenarios until they, fail, they, 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 they cease to become worst case scenarios. Sure. And you don't become used to them. And not just used to them, but you can thrive at them and actually know how to defuse them um, and, and, and keep your sort of muscle memory, your sort of like your wits about you. And, um, and ego plays a big part in that because if you don't put your ego aside, if you don't put your fear aside, you don't build up that experience to be able to thrive in those environments mm-hmm. uh, because every time you just be afraid to, to actually experience it or you won't put yourself in the situation mm-hmm. uh, or you, your ego won't let you accept the fact that you've been caught and, and, and you get hurt and then you can't train anymore. And then that's, so all those things lead to fear and ego lead to um, like a slower learning. And I'd say that that applies to, to real life as well in mm-hmm. a business circumstance. You say people that are afraid to change because that's the way they've been doing things for a long time mm-hmm. and the whole environment has changed around them. Those are the guys that get disrupted and, uh, and ultimately end up sort of like, um, you know, being changed as opposed to changing themselves. Sure. And uh, there are lots of sort of like parallels you could draw. Um, for example, if you, you've got a good guard, you've got a good close guard and you're playing your guard game, but this guy is a great guard opener and, you know, you know eventually he's going to open your guard. So you have two choices. You can just sit there and then wait until he opens your guard and then be forced to play an open guard that, that he has kind of put you into. Or you can open your guard yourself and then basically play the guard that you want to play. Just something I've been talking to JK a lot about. So by choosing like, to change as opposed to being changed, mm-hmm. I think it takes a lot of uh, like a lot of lack of ego because a lot of ego is always like, well, we did this before, and so we're going to do it in the future, and that's you know, that's how did it, Dad did it, so that's how I'll do it. <laughs> so no, it takes a lot of courage as well, right? It love to, to sort of embrace that. And, I uh, think yeah, it does take courage, but also I think a big part of it is just, um, is you have to. You have to put away the ego yes. um, because uh, sometimes uh, it's not so much that you are wrong. It's just that you were wrong now because mm-hmm. you were right before it, it, something that worked before. I mean, again, just to pull this back into jujitsu. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of passes that I used to use uh, and would work, you know, for most of the guys, most of the time mm-hmm. and everyone got wise to it. And, and now like almost never works. <laughs> so. So is it is the passing wrong? Is is the technique wrong? The technique hasn't changed. The technique's not wrong. It's just the environment's changed. It's like everyone's learned that trick. So, so then I have to do something different. So it's it's the same thing. You know the idea of uh, especially the mats themselves as this kind of little crucible of experimentation that occurs is 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 fascinating, right? And I think like this, the analogies that you draw behind like Stoic philosophy um, and the benefits of jujitsu, I think that analogy is pretty strong. Yeah, it's interesting if you talk about you know this process of creative destruction and you know the challenges of adapting to you know potentially disrupting a family business itself. Uh, and I know that you had Henry Gracie come in mm-hmm. and kind of talk to you know both yourself, run a seminar at your gyms uh, in Shanghai, but also talk to business leaders. And I'd be interested to you know from his perspective. He obviously comes from a, a very storied background. You know, the Gracies themselves, they're essentially kind of the progenitors of almost all of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. When you think about legacy, when you think about disruption and change, I'd be interested about, you know, what he spoke, what you spoke with him about, what he shared with you about, about his perspectives on that, and whether or not there's anything that, you know, you took that there was um, 
actionable on, on your behalf? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we, we spend a lot of time on the mats and off the mats, and we talked a lot about life. Um, he did share some things with me. I'm not so sure if uh, he'd want me to share sort of broadly. So, so I mean, like... Uh, you can synthesize a little bit. <laughs> you can like yeah. I, think, I think the things that, like, uh, for sure, it, it's okay to share. Um, uh, the, the, the technical aspects of, of rolling is, is, is funny because, like, uh, so I picked him up from the hotel. We had dinner the first night, and so we just kind of got to know each other. Because the first time we'd actually met, you know, he'd flown, you know, sort of... 20 hours halfway across the world, you know, to meet some guy who'd never actually met him face to face and we'd never actually even had a phone call uh, and, uh, you know, brought him to Shanghai to do a business meeting and a, and a jiu-jitsu seminar. So we got to get to know each other over dinner and we talked and, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of common language uh, when you share something, um, you know, as, uh, share an interest as deep, which is as comp- complex and as deeply rooted as jiu-jitsu. So uh, I think we were able to establish quite a, quite a good sort of rapport from, from just a very short period of time. And uh, the question he asked me was, hey, so when are we going to roll? Uh, I was like, you know, what do you mean? He said, ah, you and me, let, let's get on the mats, let's roll. I said, oh, well, how about tomorrow? And he's like, I only brought one gi, so uh, let's do no gi. I said, sure. So um, next day, sort of, I, I finished my morning meetings, and there's one of, my, one of our academies is right next to my office. And then so I kind of walk up to the academy with Hannah Gracie, and we're like, yeah, let's just roll nogi. And so everyone's like, hey, that's, that's Hannah Gracie. <laughs> and the two of us are just rolling. And so it's like a very open dialogue. So it's like, okay, yeah, so I think that like having a discussion over dinner and then basically just having a, a dialogue sort of on the mats and, and sort of, you know, exchanging ideas um, through sort of this kinetic interaction of, of uh, sort of submission grappling, you know, especially nogi, um, I think was, was a, a very different way and sort of almost like more instinctive way to kind of get to know someone. And, um, and you know, he showed me a lot of techniques and it was really cool. But I guess just to, just to seek a little bit on this point, um, you can actually learn a lot about a person from just ruling with them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stuff there's an that's, intimacy involved, right? That's, yeah, yeah. Intimacy is, is like it's a weirdly weird word to use because normally, like when when people use the words intimate, it seems like sexual in nature. It's absolutely not. I think it's just like more like getting to know someone, but without words, without sort of like these like um, concepts of like you know communication, yeah. like that you have to like filter it through. It's like you know just to be frank, some guys you know are, are rude. You know, like they'll they'll do rude things, which you know you can you can. Not illegal, but you can be rude, right? Like, sure. Sort of like you have someone in a hon kazatakami, right? You can use your like ribs to really sort of like grind against sort of like the ch- like chest, really make it really sure. uncomfortable. You know, there's neon belly and then there's neon solar plexus. I mean, it's it's a choice, you know, on on how you do it, right? And and obviously, if you if you're rolling with someone. And uh, it's just more for, you know, study, interaction, that crucible of, of learning. And, uh, and you do it, and, and, and someone is, is kind of rude about it. It's kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of uncool, right? Obviously, if you're competing and you want to win, then, you know, everything that's legal is okay. Right? That, that's fine. But um, at the same time, um, if, number one, someone has the cognitive sort of, like, sort of maturity to recognize that what they're doing is cool or uncool, um, uh, you know, if they're being rude or unrude or not, or, 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 or polite is, uh, is one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And, and the other aspect is sort of, um, do they sort of 
respect to that sort of exchange of, of motion and ideas um, so that like both of you can get something from it uh, mm -hmm. without sort of being too uncomfortable. I mean, it's gotta be uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable. I mean, there's, there's always, there's the, you know, there's the, the knee to the thigh and sort sure. of like, you know, closed guard opening, you know, there's all sorts of like, you know, do, what, how much of your shoulder pressure do you actually put into a person's face inside control? Sure. You know, I, I find that that's, it's very unspoken. But uh, but you can learn a lot about someone, and then obviously there's things like personal hygiene as well. Which, <laughs> well, yes, that that stuff is absolutely obvious. But, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I was just having this conversation the other day, just this idea of like, uh, you know, like game theory, right? Mm -hmm. Like the prisoner's dilemma. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the prisoner's dilemma, for people not familiar with game theory, essentially, if you have two players, right, and you know they're faced with the prospect of you know cooperating with the authorities. Uh, essentially ratting out the other person or keeping their mouth shut, right? Uh, and, you know, if you draw a quadrant, they're basically four outcomes of the world. And the best outcome of the world is where they both essentially keep their mouth shut and, you know, uh, support each other, right? Uh, and the worst outcome, obviously, is uh, if they rat each other out. So one wins and one loses. It's a very zero-sum mm -hmm. game. Yep. Um, and the issue with the prisoner's dilemma is if you play the game only once, at every, st at every stage, no matter what, one, one, what the other person does, you are always incentivized to essentially to defect, mm -hmm. to rat the other person out, yeah. because your payoff is always higher. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue is that is, is that it's basically a one-shot game. Mm -hmm. So if you do a one-shot game, it's clear that you are always kind of uh, rewarded for essentially you know, poorer behavior. But what's interesting about jiu-jitsu is, in many cases, it's structured like an infinite game. Right. If you roll with someone, especially if you're your normal training partners, these are the people that you're going to roll with again and again. Maybe even within the same kind of training session that same that same day, but definitely within the next week, within the next month, the next year. So very much to your point, you learn a lot about how someone is. Mm -hmm. You learn about what their decision making process is. Mm -hmm. But what's beautiful about jujitsu is you play infinite games, mm -hmm. and if you play infinite games, actually you're much more incentivized to cooperate. Yeah, exactly. You're much more, because the payoff is higher. And in mm -hmm. this case, you know, the analogy would be everybody learns. Everybody learns and gets better, right? And so for those people who, like you say, are a little bit ruder on the mats, right? They're playing more like one-shot games, mm -hmm. and essentially their, their learning will be limited at some point in time because people will be like, no, I don't think you're the guy that I want to, uh, to train with or drill with. Or more likely, you'll be on the receiving end of more rude behavior. Yeah, that yeah. might stunt I mean, your it, it does. It doesn't be very uh, karmic in the sense that, like, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, you get a knee on solar plexus. You give a knee on solar plexus. You get a knee on solar plexus. <laughs> so people very quickly sort of figure that out. Yeah, it's definitely a give and take. But uh, to, to just to go back to to answer your question about Henner and Shanghai, so yeah, we, we rolled in the mass and we had a you know, good dialogue there, and uh, a lot of it is technical around sort of um, jujitsu and uh, sort of positions and techniques. Um, later on, when we uh, had a had a smaller discussion with uh, with a group of sort of my, um, I'm, I'm a member of a YPO, which is a Young Partisans Organization. It's a global sort of leadership organization uh, for you know CEOs. And, um, and basically the motto is better leadership through continued education. Um, and so a big part of education is, is bringing in different speakers and, and having them teach um, different aspects of what they can learn, what they're experts at to this leadership group. And so um, basically uh, Henner talked about a lot of strategies from jiu-jitsu which are applicable to, to life and to business as well. 
And a couple of the concepts, um, I think, which, which I, I think are, are, I'm free to share here, and you know, maybe I'll synthesize some of the other ones that aren't so uh, obvious. Um, I think one that you talked a lot about was um, uh, failing forward. Um, basically, each time you fail doesn't have to be sort of like a, a, a big setback. Uh, sometimes you get information from failing every time that like, you know, from a jiu-jitsu perspective, when you're rolling, you get tapped, right? It's not the worst case scenario. It, you simulated worst case scenario. You failed, but you take that information, use it to, to help your game, to help you develop. And so failing forward on a consistent basis, mm -hmm. you know, brings you uh, to a better space. And, and a big part of sort of how to make that work is your mental acceptance of failure, of, mm -hmm. of how you think about failure. If failure is the end of the world, then yes, of course, failure is a setback. Mm -hmm. But if failure is a learning opportunity, a way for you to uh, get information, to get data, to, to learn how to do things better, mm -hmm. uh, how do I avoid that on bar next time? You know, mm -hmm. if I'm being mounted, okay, fine. I know now that like uh, the, the the buck and roll like you know, technique doesn't work when this guy puts his hands this way. I know that I'm gonna like you know basically pull his leg into like half guard instead. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, there, there's all these different um, sort of information points you can draw from failure mm -hmm. and you can learn so much more from that. So your attitude uh, towards failure and, and what you get from simulated failure mm -hmm. or simulated sort of worst case environments is, is very important. And I think that's very uh, dear and, and close to the heart of what we get from training jiu-jitsu regularly. Sure. But don't you think like the, the ask, because you, you hear that a lot in, in the tech community these days and, you know, Silicon Valley, this idea of, fail, right? Mm -hmm. Fail early and fail often. But I wonder sometimes uh, the unspoken thing is that you should also fail small. If you're going to mm -hmm. fail early and fail often, hopefully you're, you know, if you're failing small, like you are having uh, these, these tiny little mistakes and errors that you can recover from, mm -hmm. right? Because I think sometimes the society we live in right now, there's a lot of fetishizing of failure itself. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, they're not talking enough about you know, what is the right environment to sort of fail in? What are the right types of failures mm -hmm. that you can have versus the wrong types? And the wrong types are obviously catastrophic type failures, right? And I think that's what's interesting about jujitsu because essentially you have a very limited set of outcomes and the failures that you have are things that you clearly can recover from, right? And I think uh, in business, it's quite interesting to do too, right? To have that feedback system, right, that you can build in where you can have small little failures that you can adapt and adjust from so that you can avoid having the large catastrophic failures. Well, so going back to your uh, game theory sort of analysis uh, for the prisoner dilemma, um, if you apply that to sort of poker, uh, the big sort of difference uh, beyond the sort of, you know, the sort of just a statistical and probabilistic sort of like outcomes of each hand is like how much you have on each sort of like, you know, how much you're betting, right? Sort of the stakes are a big part of it. So if you're sort of like, you know, you know, bluffing or folding and it's just like sort of, you know, just like the entry stakes, then that's really not that big a deal. But then, you know, so that those small failures are, are more a way to get data, see how people react. But then when you commit and then sort of like you go all in, all in on something, you know, which could lead to catastrophic failure, then like you need to make sure the probabilities are very, very much aligned for, for you and on your side. So um, to, to sort of add to what you're saying about sort of the, the fetishization of failure, I think the stakes and the measurement of what you are risking on failure mm. are, are very important as well. I think... Um, I think the other thing that's, uh, that's quite interesting is a lot of psychological studies have been shown that the kids that play a lot of video games mm -hmm. are, are very good at sort of uh, adapting to sort of like, you know, 
entrepreneurial relationships or like sort of uh, like business or, or life because the whole concept of games that you're, you're failing all the time is <laughs> yeah. like little deaths right because yeah. you, you get good at the game because you've died so many times right? the benefit is that you get to respawn that's yeah, the thing right? because to respond but then yeah. like what, what's the what's the cost of respawning yes right? it's just not it's, it's relatively low oh well, eventually it gets high once you're at a high enough level sure. but that you, you're almost you're almost like trained to like take that mentality of, okay, little small failures in the beginning and get good, get better and, you know, get, get to the highest level. Mm -hmm. And then you might get, you know, sent back like, you know, seven levels, but like, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, it's almost counterintuitive because uh, parents will tell the kids, oh, you're wasting your time playing video games. But um, to a large degree, video games teach you a lot. I mean, um, sort of online games, if it's a like, you know, community-based games, you have to be collaborative to work together and a lot of strategies that involve groups, strategic thinking, um, sort of a group management, um, sort of a interaction at a, at a sort of like, you know, life or death level. I mean, mm -hmm. virtually, not, not, not physically. Mm -hmm. And then that, that sort of concept of little failures where you can fail until you get really good mm -hmm. because you never, you never get ahead if you don't play enough to, to, get good, but yeah. you don't get good unless you like you end up failing a couple of times. So yeah. that's sort of like, you know, psychological sort of like buildup and sort of that acceptance of little failures uh, and, and recognition, uh, uh, cognition of sort of the, the stakes that you're playing for actually is a very useful tool. I mean, versus like, you know, basically you go, you have a, you get assigned a book, you listen to the teacher for a whole semester. Yeah. At the end of the semester, you have one test. All right. If you mess up the test, then, you know, that's it. You know, you get a bad grade. Yeah. That's kind of, that, that method of learning is kind of like, it's, it's all or nothing. It's kind of, you know, very, it's very, very binary. It's right? very binary, quite risky. Of course. I mean, it, it does, it does, you know, sort of that traditional concept of, okay, you got to be consistent. You have to uh, put in the work, you got to do homework, you got to listen in class, but then you just have the one shot to, to demonstrate yeah. like how much you absorbed and, and, and sort of whether you were learning the right way or not. Mm. What if you were, were paying attention? What if you were trying hard, but you weren't learning the right way? You weren't applying the techniques that, that sort of worked for you that whole semester. Mm. And this one test asked you questions in a way that, that you weren't be expecting to be asked and you couldn't express the knowledge that you'd absorbed over that semester, then that's it. You're, you're, you've, you've messed it up. And as far as like the, the school is concerned, yeah. you're, you're dumb, you know, you just, you're, or you're a bad student. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that, that's, a really interesting, that's a really interesting point, and I wonder about this, and I feel like there's, it's a deep vein to kind of tap into in terms of all the different analogies, but, you know, this idea of playing games. So, playing games is great, playing games helps accelerate your learning. Then it leads me to the question of, if all that is true, then maybe what's also equally, maybe most important is choosing what types of games to play. Right. And the analogy within jujitsu is, you know, you can choose what type of game you want to have. Mm -hmm. Right. You want to choose a game that allows you or the technique. You know, if you play a plata game, if you play a top game, you play bottom game, you play card game that gives you the most, you know, the highest probabilistic chance of success. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, to your point about education, I think one of the issues right now is, you know, kids don't get a chance to choose what games they play. Mm -hmm. But I think the world that we're moving into more online education, more, you know, academic resources, you know, that whole definition of what that looks like, I think potentially changes and actually gives a lot more choice for, for people to actually decide, oh, these are the games that I personally should play. These are mm -hmm. the things that it's going to enhance my ability to be successful in the world. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be kind of drawn from that, from martial arts uh, uh, and uh, applying that, whether or not if you play video games, whether or not if you do jujitsu, 
right? But this idea of actually choosing which games to play, uh, I think is almost as important as playing the game itself. Well, I guess this brings me to like uh, the second thing that I, I can share uh, from Henry's time in Shanghai. He talked a lot about um, ready, shoot, aim. So mm. it's like, I guess that's a little counterintuitive. You think, oh, it's like, a, you, know, you got ready, aim, then fire, right? Mm. But sometimes it's about like getting stuff out there, doing something first, and mm. then fine tuning from there. If you're, you plan forever mm-hmm. and you think about something um, sort of until you, you're going to have a perfect sort of like game plan and then you execute, quite frequently uh, the opportunity would have passed you by or you execute and you find out oh, actually the, the game plan wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. So, um, so sometimes, uh, you know, you, you, you get ready then you shoot, you know, see what happens, you know, and then from there you fine tune and, and basically adjust from there. Now, from a jujitsu perspective, uh, and, and it goes specifically to your, to your question about the picking the game that you want to play and how you want to play it. Um, I think that like uh, it's, it is, it, it's, it's good to have a game plan and to think, okay, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, where, you know, I'm going to start in this guard, I'm going to open this guard, I'm going to pass this guard, I'm going to be inside control, I'm going to go to knee on belly, I'm going to mount him, and then I'm going to take his arm, all right? So basically, arm, I'm going to arm bar him. That's, that's sort of like that. That's the, your path, and that's like what you think you're going to do. But then, you know, you, it could be the case that, like, uh, he sweeps you from, from guard, and, and then suddenly, like, that, that plan is, is out the window. And so the game that you were going to play, that you'd chosen to play sort of in your mind, uh, is, is, is disrupted. And so, you know, what do you do? I mean, do you, do you just accept the fact that, okay, now you're not just swept, and now, like, you know, he's going to then execute his strategy? Or do you then sort of, like, play something different? And um, this is actually something that, like, I think uh, I've had a big problem with uh, historically, and, and I've always wanted to, um, to change and, and I've been fo- more focused on is exploring the weak areas of, of, of my game. And, uh, you know, I know that like, you know, I, I like top game. I like, you know, sort of, <laughs> I like, uh, playing from inside my opponent's guard. Um, I'm quite comfortable because I feel that my balance is pretty good. It's, it's hard to be swept or I don't typically get swept and, and normally I can even give grips, uh, so they can do whatever sort of collar sleeve or sort of spider or a lasso. And so I'll give it to them. And then from there I'll, I'll work because I, I like to, that's my, that's my, uh, sort of, uh, comfort zone. I'm very uncomfortable in open guard, to be honest. Um, I just always feel that when I'm, you know, sort of quite exposed, um, that my guard will get passed very easily. And, um, and so what I've really focused on um, is playing my weak game. Like over the past uh, sort of year or so, I've really focused on sort of, okay, I'm just going to go to open guard. And in fact, I'll, you know, I'll start off and I'll just flop down and say, okay, fine, I'm going to play guard. I'm not going to you know, insist on top or try to play top. I know I'm going to play guard. So I'll take the bottom position and play from, play from bottom. And uh, as opposed to closing guard or even going to half guard, I'm I'm only going to play open guard. I'm just going to see an open guard because I suck at it. I'm something I'm really weak at. It's something I'm really um, uncomfortable with. Uh, and so I just, I just want to play that aspect of it. And, um, and so I think that like to answer your question about picking the types of games that you want to play, um, you can always play the ones you're comfortable with and, and you think that you're good at and have a game plan. But I think the counterpoint to that is if you don't explore the, the ones you're not so good at, then it severely limits your options. And if you have a game plan in place and doesn't go according to plan, then you don't have the tools necessary to, to be able to, to scramble out of it and, and be, be flexible on the fly. So, um, you know, I guess in, in the context of, you know, ready, shoot, aim, right? Mm-hmm. It's like 
you, 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 know, you have some ideas ahead of time, be well prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, you go out, see what happens, right? You know, in, in the course of like, you know, be it a business or be it a, a, a role. Uh, and then from there you fine tune, but you have to have the tool set that, that's, that, that suits that situation. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to sometimes play your weak games. Sure. Let's, let's pivot a little bit, actually. Let's a uh, little bit of your background in terms of building a business in China. So uh, you, um, did you, you didn't found uh, Def Group, correct? No, 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 no. So, no. But mm-hmm. you are now an owner of Def Group, correct? So um, actually, so DEF Boxing uh, started in 2002. Um, so it's opened at the Centrium in Upper Lang Kwai Fong. And so I used to train boxing there. Um, they moved from uh, the Centrium to the Pemberton, uh, and then from Pemberton to the, the where it is now on uh, Connaught Road, right next to Wing On. And in 2011, they started uh, doing a promotions business, so DEF Promotions, which um, my partner Jay Lau um, has has been very active and growing very uh, sort of successfully um, over the past uh, eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, DF Promotions has done many professional boxing events in Hong Kong and is the premier sort of like a boxing promoter. Actually, there's a show last night uh, here in Hong Kong mm. uh, that, that we did. So um, basically uh, in 2014, um, end of 2014, uh, the original sort of like partner group uh, at DEF um, said they wanted to expand, get a couple more sort of uh, investors on board um, and they brought, um, you know, me and, and a friend of mine uh, in, and so we became a, a group of five uh, sort of partners, uh, the three original partners and the two of us, uh, and we basically uh, were the, the core investors in, in sort of deaf boxing and deaf promotions uh, at the time. Um, you know, since then, you know, sort of more investors have come in, but uh, in 2016, uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was expand into China. And so, you know, especially because I was the one that was spending the most time in China as a result of my family business, uh, it kind of uh, fell upon me to uh, take uh, more of an active role in sort of developing um, DEF's sort of uh, operations in China. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that um, I looked at was, um, you know, basically growth versus acquisition. Uh, If if we're going to open one gym from scratch, grow from there. Um, versus uh, purchasing and acquiring something, you know, what would be sort of a, a better sort of like alternative? Mm. And um, it just became sort of a, by happen chance, by sort of a fortuitous sort of like a timing, uh, an opportunity came up to to buy uh, a stake, a controlling stake in SHBJJ. Uh, Shanghai Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was established in 2004 in Shanghai mm-hmm. and was one of the original sort of uh, founding sort of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academies uh, in China, uh, based out of Shanghai. How long um, had it been in China for? 2004. 2004. 2004, okay. Yeah, so by the time that like uh, we acquired a, a stake in it in 2016, you know, it had been business for 12 years. Mm-hmm. They had one main academy and they had some uh, sort of franchisees as well. Um, and the main black belt at the time was, was looking to, to move back to uh, Australia um, for family reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we talked and negotiated um, you know, to, to uh, acquire um, a controlling stake in the business mm-hmm. and use that sort of as a springboard to grow and to develop 
um, sort of uh, DEF sort of operations in uh, in China, with basically SHBJJ and DEF Boxing mm-hmm. as our two major brands that we're going to build our operations around. Mm-hmm. Uh, given the length of time that both of them have been around, DEF mm-hmm. since uh, DEF Boxing since 2002, mm-hmm. and SHBJJ since 2004, using those as our sort of keystone sort of like offerings. Uh, in in China uh, as as our sort of like a fitness um, sort of like a curriculum. How, how many students did uh, Shanghai BJJ had at the time when you acquired it? You know, <laughs> I have to go back and check. I don't remember off the top of my head. There are a couple hundred in the database. Okay, um, so sure. it was a you know it was a it was a, it was a substantial business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that it was a. Is good in the sense that basically they had the history. Yeah. Um, they had the the sort of like the breadth of operation uh, across Shanghai and also outside of Shanghai because mm-hmm. they had franchisees uh, in other areas as well, like uh, Suzhou and sure. Wuxi and uh, Zhangjiakang as well. Mm-hmm. So by by having that breadth of sort of exposure mm-hmm. as well as the number of students, it, it immediately gave us sort of uh, um, some some numbers to work with on the platform. Sure. Um, as we looked to, to you know fine tune, develop mm-hmm. that, and also grow sort of the the DEF brand in China. But what did you see like in that initial genesis of the idea that you wanted to move into mainland China? What are what are the types of things that you saw in the market over there that you thought were attractive? And you know, what, what was your understanding of I guess the history of, you know, either it's martial arts or, you know, the fitness industry over there and what did you think the opportunities were going forward? Well, I think that um, fitness and boldness as a long-term trend, um, not just in China but globally, is is definitely um, uh, on on the upswing. I think that like, people are spending more time, more money, um, sort of, you know, more resources on getting fit, staying fit, and it's a um, it's a whole lifestyle choice because it's not just about exercise you do; it's also about the food that you eat. Um, the clothes you wear, the, the people you hang out with, the type of media you consume, all these things um, basically are associated and tie into a wellness lifestyle. But when I look at fitness specifically, um, you know, it doesn't have to be China um, sort of like, you know, as a market, um, like specifically, but just you know, on a global basis. The, the shift in sort of like consumer trends in fitness has been away from uh, generalized fitness, big box fitness, and more towards specific uh, niche type fitness. And I think a couple drivers are there. I think number one, um, so many of our sort of interactions these days are virtual. I mean, you have uh, you know, online conversations, you, you, you play online, you know, games, you, you date online, everything is virtual. You know, some of your work is done online, either you know, sort of remotely or even in the office is all sort of a email, video conference, teleconference. And, and so the, all these like sort of non-physical sort of interactions I think creates a need uh, for physical uh, sort of like interaction. And one thing about fitness is that it's kind of hard to do virtually. I mean, you know, there, there are lots of ways to, to create virtual programs for you to learn, but you still have to get out of your seat and physically do something. And, and a big part of going to um, a location to, uh, to train, to get fit, you know, to invest in your, your wellness um, is to find a group of like-minded individuals, uh, uh, sort of a community to share that uh, sort of uh, process with. And I think that like uh, the traditional sort of big box fitness, which is traditionally how people have thought about, you know, gyms and working out, um, where you have treadmills or you have sort of like uh, sort of 
training bikes or you have rowing machines um, or you do your cardio. It's like you pop a DVD in and you watch two episodes of whatever show it is that's popular now. You know, work up a sweat, make sure your heart rate was at a certain rate for a certain number of minutes. Maybe lift some weights, take a shower and go home. That's not very sticky. I mean, the, the, the whole sort of um, sort of like attraction of that type of a lifestyle of that sort of a fitness solution or mm -hmm. concept um it was, it was quickly fading and and more and more you'd find that 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 people were very into fitness people are very into wellness people are very into working out but they'd be doing something that was very niche very specific mm -hmm. so oh what do you do oh man you know i do trx say so, hey what do you do oh i do crossfit sure And even there, in, within these sort of like very specific exercises that people um, would go to, uh, to, to, to find sort of like their, their interests, to keep them you know, engaged and, and returning, um, there'd be a very tribal mentality. Uh, you, you ask, oh, what do you do? Oh, I do yoga. Oh, what kind of yoga? You know, you do Ashtanga. You know, mm -hmm. do, do do Hatha yoga? Yeah, what kind? You know, you do, do like it's like very um, very specific, almost like you know, like dogs sniffing each other's tails. Like, what tribe do you belong to? And this tribal mentality, I think, is uh, is is very much what people are seeking. They they want to connect to a community mm -hmm. of like minded individuals that that feel and can uh, connect the same way to a specific interest mm -hmm. that they do, and that creates a stickiness. And so when I look at sort of the, the fitness industry, if you will, I, I don't really want to call it just the fitness industry, but if you look at sort of wellness and fitness as, as a long-term trend, which I think we all agree is increasing mm -hmm. and has, uh, has more traction and has more and more people being attracted to it, I think the growth segment in there is, is niche sort of like fitness where you have a very specific and very technical sort of like offering which you can build a community around. And that mm -hmm. becomes very sticky. That becomes something that, that, that like the, the members, the students um, will, will be very attracted to and can keep coming back to longer term. It's not something that, you know, is a fad where they, you know, like, I don't want to, you know, besmirch any, any particular field, but like underwater sort of spinning, for example. It's a real thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making it up. So it's, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last. You know, I mean, like, how long are people going to want to go to this facility where they have a, a, a mini pool and they've put bikes in the pool and you're going to spin inside the water because it creates extra resistance? I think, you know, it's interesting, but, you know. There's an entire tribe of underwater spinners out there right now who are just shouting into the... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get like... How dare you, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be walking on Hollywood Road and like, you know, some, some person's going to hit me from behind. It's like, yeah, I, I'm an underwater spinner. I mean, you and, should be careful next time you go yeah, into a pool. You exactly. never know. You never know. You never know. But I mean, this, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know how sticky that's going to be. Yeah. So, because uh, let's be honest, there, there are a lot of fad, uh, fads in wellness. There are a lot of fads uh, in, in nutrition and... Um, I think it's intriguing you say that because like we, I mean, we're having this conversation in Hong Kong right now mm -hmm. and you know, Hong Kong to my, my experience is one of the most faddish places that you could possibly imagine. Right. I think the health and fitness or wellness industry in Hong Kong has just been characterized by this idea of this, you know, there's a six month half-life for almost everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Be lucky if you go 12 months, you've seen everything you've been seeing people, like you say, underwater spinning or exercising on trampolines mm -hmm. or, you know, TRX or bands or whatever it happens to mm -hmm. be. Um, but this idea that, you know, there's a tribal aspect to it, that there are people looking, searching for some kind of connection, I think is, is, is a very, you know, meaningful and topical thing. And you see it surfacing time again in just discussions. So for, for health and wellness itself, like this idea, you're going from a, you know, a, a market that basically has no background into it and 
you know, basically putting in this kind of new proposition. What is there an opportunity there in terms of leapfrogging, or do you find that that you actually had to educate a lot uh, uh, in terms of people like what what this is, right? Um, well, I think there's both of it. I think I think both of it in terms of both like uh, education, uh, educating the consumer base, uh, teaching them exactly what it is you're offering. Um, and also uh, sort of using it as an ability to leapfrog and sort of get, you know, sort of get ahead in terms of developing a platform within your niche. Um, it's, it's important to differentiate sort of uh, running a mix. Well, I don't want to say mixed martial arts academy because that's not what we really are. I mean, we offer Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu and boxing and functional strength training. What's and, the and mission yoga. statement for, uh, is it a deaf group in Shanghai? DF group is a, deaf group is a fitness as lifestyle. Fitness as lifestyle. So you want, you want sort of, you know, wellness and fitness in, is, to be sort of your lifestyle and to be a conscious choice uh, in terms of, you know, how you, how you live your life. And, and movement is a big part of it. And how you move to express yourself is, is a very key part of it. And so fitness as lifestyle is sort of our mission statement. But I don't think that we want to do that at the cost of the the acknowledgement of the fact that we also teach traditional martial arts. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's that's very important as well, and that includes things like respect and things like you know sort of tradition, and um, and so there is a lot of education that goes on because if you're gonna you know <laughs> I, I hate picking on underwater spitting, but like yeah. <laughs> If go for it. Go if, for if, it. You, if you take underwater spinning, right, and make you know, and that's the thing. There, there's no, there's no tradition or sort of like you know specific sort of like, you know, history around it that, that you have to like learn and respect. You just kind of you know get into the water, hop on the bike, and then you know spin away. Right, that's a, that's the thing, right? And then they, you know, I, I don't know how exactly how it works. Is there a jacuzzi effect? Do they do they have like some underwater music so that the water the, the water like has vibrations? I, I don't know, but I'm just making this up as I go along. <laughs> But um, but the thing is, um, we are we still are teaching traditional martial arts. You know, like uh, you know, boxing with its long, long history and dating back to sort of like uh, the, the Greco games, uh, the first Olympics, um, in Muay Thai with its history deeply rooted in in Thailand and and Jiu Jitsu Brazilian as well as you know Japanese and going back to sort of its roots in Asia, um, knowing where it came from and also sort of respecting that that culture of of trust. Um, because you, when you step on the mats, you're basically effectively signing an agreement um, with your body that, that you will trust your opponent, you will trust your partners, that as you train, that if you sort of yield to them or tap to them, that they will not kill you or break your bones. And vice versa, that if you have someone in a bad situation, that they will you know, be smart enough and, and acknowledge that and, and yield so that you don't end up hurting them because that's almost as bad as being hurt. I mean, if, if you've ever broken someone's you know, sort of wrist or, or arm, you know, then that would be traumatic. It's not like, uh, I think, uh, hopefully a very small, small like uh, uh, minority of people would actually enjoy something like that. I think most majority of people would feel very bad about that. So the offering that, that we have um, although it is fitness and lifestyle, and although we stress that wellness aspect of it, I don't think we want to forget that we still are teaching traditional martial arts also as a part of that. And so that education, striking that balance of um, educating around the traditional mindsets and uh, making it as accessible to as many people as possible um, without letting it become a commoditized sort of, you know, McDojo type, you know, type of an offering 
is uh, is a very fine line to walk. Yes. And, and that's something that I get challenged on quite a bit um, because it's like, oh, you've opened so many locations. Like, how do you maintain the quality of instruction? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, is it becoming a McDojo mentality? You know, and, and is, is, that, is that sort of... Uh, is that something that, that you want to sort of promote, which mm-hmm. obviously we don't. I think the authenticity of what we offer is very important. I think this also is a, another important point. Why did we structure our program around sort of DEF boxing mm-hmm. and SHPJJ when, when we sort of launched with DEF Group? I think the, um, the current, sort of inv- uh, current sort of consumer base uh, all over the world, not just in China, but all over the world, are uh, very sensitive to authenticity. Yep. Um, they can smell bullshit a mile away. Mm-hmm. And if you're tr- trying to offer something that's kind of you know, s- flashy and cool but has no substance and there's nothing really behind it, there's no message that, they can, that the end consumer can actually connect with, they might consume with you, you know, they make, might make that decision to consume with you once or twice, but then they'll fade away. It's, 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 a, very, it's a very sort of a shallow sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I think that way we, we did sort of our initial sort of... Um, product offering around boxing and jujitsu is because it's, it's an area that we've had a lot of experience with in terms of running operations around these specific um, sports, um, you know, disciplines, martial arts. Uh, and also it's something that we feel that like from an instructor's perspective, we have um, good instructors that can walk that fine line between sort of scalability uh, and sort of like mass market without becoming uh, commoditized and, and sort of losing the, that tr- touch with tradition. And so that's why that authentic aspect of it is so incre- uh, incredibly important. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I think uh, in many respects, if you think about it, right, if, if like the underlying proposition that people are really buying into beyond just fitness and health and, you know, everything that comes along with it, what they're looking for is community and connection and essentially joining a tribe, then it perfectly makes sense. Like this, what appeals to them is authenticity, right? Exactly. I think the other thing is like, um, when you look at sort of like communities, you know, online versus uh, sort of uh, physical communities, there, there is an, there's a certain aspect of humanity and, and, you know, animals as a whole that like require sort of physical interaction. Uh, I think we are actually built uh, and, and sort of evolved over time to, to seek and actually you know, maintain a certain amount of physical interaction. If we're cut off from physical interaction for too prolonged a period, I think that it creates you know, a certain chemical imbalances. This, again, here, for me, it's like a, I, I don't have the science to back this up, but I can you know, tell you that like, after I've had a very you know, good session, sort of boxing, Muay Thai, or you know, being on the mats, rolling, I get a, get a bit of a high, you know, there's like the endorphins are definitely pumping. I sure. feel a lot better. I mean, I, I, there's a, there's that sort of like, I can come in and, and be tired beforehand or I can be, you know, sort of stressed out beforehand. I can even have a physical like headache beforehand. Um, and, uh, and then sort of through that process of sort of physical, physical interaction, um, I do feel that like your, your, your brain, your body releases sort of certain hormones or chemicals that, sure. you know, it could be adrenaline, you know, it could be endorphins, it could be other things, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone's ever done any studies. I know that they've had for mother and babies, you know, sure. in terms of like, um, uh, oxycodone, right? 
oxytocin or oxytocin? Uh, I forget which one. There's one of the one of the chemicals that are released when a when a mother sort of um, sort of carries the child mm -hmm. that makes them feel good and, and, and safe. But I definitely, you know, there is um, a, a physical sort of like benefit mm -hmm. from from that physical interaction as well. Yeah. And there's no way you're gonna get that from like sort of an online sort of like community. Mm -hmm. If anything, it becomes like destructive because it also becomes like this, uh, this feedback of uh, you seeking likes, you're seeking sort of these like, uh, these hearts, right? Like you're seeking sort of like the approval of others. What's well, that immediate gratification, that immediate dopamine hit that doesn't yeah, last, right? Exactly. It's very Until the it's last. Like, it's like what, you're getting like just like processed white sugar. Yes. Right? Versus like, you know, something that, that's more longer, like healthier and better for you. I mean, you will seek that but like it's in a very artificial, fake mm -hmm. sort of like dopamine hit from that sort of like like or, or heart. You're always checking like your account to see, oh, how many likes did this post get? Or like, you know, did anyone comment on my post? Um, I think those things are, um, are, are a very poor substitute mm -hmm. for the, the type of sort of, um, sort of you know, positive sort of feeling you get mm -hmm. from physical interaction. And so that's the other, the, that's the other thing I think that like when, when we look at our business and we look at sort of what we're trying to offer, um, a big part of that is um, sharing. Because if mm -hmm. you found something good, you found something you like, um, a big part of your enjoyment of it is sharing it with others. It's, sure. You know, imagine you, you have this amazing bottle of wine, but you're drinking it by yourself. It, you know, just kind of boring, right? It's, like, it's kind of, yeah, great. It's a great bottle of wine. It's, ah, but if you have like, you know, someone else that really likes wine and you're, you're both sharing the bottle of wine, you're both explaining to each other, oh, I like it because of this, or you're going through the, the details of the wine, like the, you know, the color, like the bouquet, mm -hmm. um, you know, how it like sort of rests on the palate, you know, suddenly as you both look at it, it becomes so much more enjoyable by sharing it. And so a big part of, again, of what we do is like, uh, we found something that, that we like uh, and we want to share it with, with uh, a broad number of people and you know, those that would be seeking the same thing mm -hmm. because um, you know, I think that the world needs more of this. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's no getting away that we are essentially social primates mm -hmm. and they're just, you know, deep-seated subconscious needs that are essentially not met in this kind of modern world. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this idea that you're building, it's interesting, especially in the China context, that you're building kind of like this tribe, um, this community of like-minded people. Have you received, it's, it's topical because right now, obviously, within, uh, say, the martial arts sphere, you know, there is a ongoing debate, or at least what it seems to be, uh, at least uh, in terms of popular media, between this idea of, you know, quote-unquote traditional Chinese mm -hmm. martial arts and uh, new modern mixed martial arts mm -hmm. for running a, a business in in that kind of market do you find what what sort of issues have you have come across in that and for those who don't have the context i mean we're talking specifically about recent events where uh you know a a, a sort of popular mixed martial arts practitioner has essentially been challenging you know traditional martial arts chinese martial arts experts whether it be in wushu or taiji chuan uh, to actual, um, you know, sparring contests and essentially, for lack of a better word, beating the hell out of them, right, <laughs> in live TV with, with the express purpose of uh, demonstrating that those martial arts do not work or that uh, essentially those people who are promoting it are essentially fakes and phonies and that, uh, you know, mixed martial arts shows a real sort of, you know, pragmatic reality. 
in that in that context, what are, what sort of issues have you seen sort of building a business like this? Um, we haven't any had any specific issues. Um, you know, like nothing like a sort of a um, sort of dojo storming or sort of like challenges that you know people coming in saying oh my martial art is better than your martial art that that really hasn't occurred i mean i know that historically that's been something that uh that has come up in the past um i think to do comment more generally about sort of uh traditional martial arts versus sort of more modern martial arts if you will i mean what is modern martial arts really i mean it's it is really just traditional martial arts but but sort of dissected and approached in a more open manner i think that a big aspect of what we call traditional martial arts is the more close-ended nature of it, that you, you belong to a certain school, that you don't really um, share that information or you don't really like uh, test that information or those techniques broadly with other people. And, um, and so therefore, you have a much smaller database as to what works, what doesn't work. I have huge respect for traditional martial arts. I think that like there's um, thousands of years of history and there's a lot of um, efficient uh, sort of techniques and moves and, and you know, beautiful culture and tradition um, that, that's embedded into sort of traditional martial arts. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's ineffective or like that it's, that it's fake or it doesn't work. Um, I do think that uh, what has changed significantly though is that for, um, if you just use mixed martial arts as a context, you're suddenly taking um, every form of martial art and opening it and exposing it to every other form of martial art. So everything becomes better quite quickly. You look at something um, traditionally, right? Like where like Taekwondo or karate, where you have uh, a lot of flashy kicks, a lot of high kicks. In the beginning, um, sort of once these, um, once these techniques were executed uh, and against the wrestler, the wrestler would catch the kick and then to get taken down on the ground and then basically get you know, punched on the ground, right? So, and because you know, that, that's, that's it's a very high probability. If you throw a high kick, you, you'll get caught. Um, and so there was a period of time when people were saying, oh yeah, like kicking doesn't work, high kicking doesn't work. So, uh, so basically it's all about wrestling and, and, and taking to the ground and hitting them on the ground. But then if you combine something with like, um, uh, like, tech, like taekwondo or, or karate with a really good guard game, where, oh yeah, I, I invite you to take me to the ground. I, you know, I'm happy for you to be my guard. So th- what I really want is to high kick you, you know, for you to catch my leg and then like, you know, you end up in my guard on the ground and I'm going to like armbar you or triangle you or amaplata you. Um, suddenly that technique becomes uh, very efficient. <coughs> and um, and uh, if anything, the combination of, of high kicking and very flashy kicks with a very active guard game on the ground um, makes the kicking game even more sort of like uh, menacing and, uh, and dangerous because the opponent knows that if they catch the kick and go to the ground, then they're in another world of pain. So, um, you know, that whole concept, oh, kicking doesn't work anymore, gets thrown out the window and, and kicking comes back. And kicking's big sort of like, you know, sort of traditional kicks, you know, sort of like, you know, big roundhouse kicks, you know, sort of like front snap kicks, you know, all those techniques that were said to, to not work because they were traditional um, suddenly become relevant again because of the addition of new information and broadening out that database. So I think that like um, specifically on the, on the topic that you're breaking up about you know, sort of in China, traditional martial arts versus more modern martial arts, it's not necessarily the fact that traditional martial arts don't work. It's that like I think by dragging them into sort of a more open dialogue, of testing all of these techniques and, and basically even the ones that, um, that, that, that are considered to not work anymore because of 
this, this or that. But when either exposed to sort of the breadth of other techniques or combined with these other techniques, suddenly they can work a lot better. I mean, we've seen this in, um, in mixed martial arts. Like uh, if you look at sort of uh, someone like, you know, Stephen Thompson or in, in the UFC or someone like uh, Anthony Pettis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they basically have incorporated elements of... Um, you know, point fighting, karate, or sort of taekwondo, mm-hmm. um, with an active like jujitsu guard game. Sure. Um, Ryan uh, Hall. You could, you Ryan. could argue like the yeah. original progenitor of that was actually is Bruce Lee. Yeah, Bruce absolutely. Lee was, yeah. It was very much of the mindset. I mean, the uh, the genesis of Jeet Kune Do was mm-hmm. essentially, you know. I'm just going to do what works. I'm going to draw from all the best parts of their various different martial arts and combine them into a style and a practice and an art form that I think um, yields the most uh, successful outcomes. So for almost, <laughs> in many cases, you could say he's kind of the forefather of all, you know, all mixed uh, martial arts. I, I mean, I think it's interesting just in this, in this time frame. if you think about what the, the most relevant analogy would be, say, in China and the way you know, people's perception about martial arts is, is essentially it's kind of like um, the United States pre-UFC 1 or just mm-hmm. around about UFC 1, so around 1992. Like the original idea of uh, the ultimate fighting championship was essentially let's put together you know, all the best martial arts artists uh, from every kind of uh, you know, stream art in the world and, and see which one works. And you know, what was interesting about that was uh, you had wrestlers, you had karate, you had Savati experts, uh, you had Taekwondo, you had uh, some sumo guys, uh, and of course you had Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mm-hmm. which ended up demonstrated its full-blown efficacy by mm-hmm. essentially you know, winning the first whoever, how many, Hoist mm-hmm. Gracie won, whatever, UFC won through till 11 or whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be, you know, submitting every manner and shape of person along the way. And I think it's no coincidence that after that you essentially saw a huge boom in um, Jiu-Jitsu and BJJ across the... The U.S. I mean, obviously, our professor, Professor Rodrigo Medeiros, mm-hmm. he moved to the United States around around that time in the mid '90s, and he saw kind of like the, you know, the huge success of that. Do you think that that's where the Chinese market is on the cusp of right now? I think so. I think that there's um, a lot of uh, development that still needs to occur, and a lot of education that still needs to occur for the viewers um, in terms of like martial arts. Um, I think the statistic uh, for China is that. Um, contact sports, you know, the combination of, you know, uh, Muay Thai, uh, Sanda, uh, boxing, uh, mixed martial arts, uh, like that is the fastest growing segment of, of youth sports in, in China as a whole. You know, it's growing faster than basketball or soccer. Of course, it's coming from a smaller base. So the rate of, of growth is, is a bit of a deceptive number to look at, but um, it's definitely growing and growing very quickly. But um, I think you'll notice that uh, if you look at the programming and the cards and the promotions that are um, locally sort of like active in China, there is a greater focus on uh, striking than there is on mixed martial arts. And a big part of it is a lack of understanding of the ground game. I think from the perspective of the viewers, if they don't understand what's going on once the fight goes to the ground, um, then it, it, they, they lose interest. And uh, I think the, you know, to answer your question about, you know, is, are we on the cusp of like this, this huge you know, explosion? Um, I, I think that there is definitely a big market out there. And I think more and more people are becoming aware of the intricacies of 
mixed martial arts across all aspects from, you know, kicking, punching, grappling to, you know, groundwork and submissions. Um, but I don't think that the market has uh, fully embraced, you know, pardon the, pardon the grappling pun there, uh, the, you know, the, the full like breadth of, um, uh, of that yet. I think it's going to take some education uh, specifically around uh, the, the grappling and uh, submission part of um, mixed martial arts before it becomes very widespread. I think in the meantime, continued growth in sort of like these uh, sort of more striking oriented like promotions and series um, will, will continue. I mean, you think even, even one has a, has a striking only series. You know, mm-hmm. where they're doing basically Muay Thai, yep. but with uh, small gloves. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's proved to be extremely popular. Many um, knockouts. A lot of knockouts, uh, fantastic fights. They've got like amazing, amazing sort of fighters, um, you know, sort of from Europe as well as from Asia. And, mm-hmm. and, that, you know, and that's immediately accessible. I mean, you may not know the intricacies of a barambolo to a back take and mm-hmm. rear naked choke, but you know, like a shin to the chin and what that, sure. what that effect is. So very visceral, uh, very yeah. easy to understand. The casual fan will immediately understand that. And so I think that's a, that's a good gateway sort of to get uh, the audience uh, into it. Sure. Um, but I think that like the, the game becomes so much more interesting mm. uh, when you include everything. I mean, even in the very original Olympic games, pancreation, you know, sure. all powers, everything, you know, because, uh, like on the ground, you know, punching, kicking, knees, elbows, you know, like sure. the submissions and you know, this is all permissible. And that's, that's effectively, I think the, the, the puzzle, the human puzzle yeah. that, uh, that is so fascinating. And when you put it all together, mm-hmm. it becomes very interesting. I think you raise an interesting point, which is that, um, how to make it accessible. And, uh, I remember John Danaher saying, who do you, someone asked him, who do you, who did he think was the most influential, uh, person in uh, modern jujitsu. And he said, bar none, it's actually Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Why is it Joe Rogan? Because he's done more for the art of jujitsu, of making it accessible to the average casual observer, being able to explain, like you, what you said, grappling, uh, which is a very complex kind of sport, really, and to break it down in a way that is accessible to the casual observer with kind of a passion and interest of a, behind it. And I think that's probably true. And I think probably for, as you say, in the Chinese market, that's, that's a step that needs to be kind of taken, right? Yeah, I think that, um, I think analysis as well as um, to fully appreciate sort of that, um, that kinetic dance, you know, between two athletes. Uh, if you're talking purely from a sports perspective, I mean, to understand and to appreciate you know, all aspects of it, especially the striking and the, the, the grappling, mm. having an expert guides you uh, really makes it much more enjoyable. Um, you know, someone like a Jack Slack mm-hmm. um, for striking, or actually mixed martial arts as a whole. Uh, Lawrence Kenshin, who does yep. a lot of really cool work. Uh, he's working with a BJJ trickster now, and they have a really cool sort of like YouTube channel, and they, they break down sort of specific techniques. Yep. Uh, Robin Black does yep. a really awesome work with his one-minute breakdowns. Um, more specifically around, uh, mm-hmm. well, not specifically around striking. He does he does submissions as well, but a lot of what he explains is the setup, the footwork, yeah. the, the sort of like the, the body mechanics that are involved in actually executing um, a series of move and how you collect data, mm-hmm. uh, how fighters are sort of almost like at a, you know, lizard brain level, like flicking out the jab and, and yeah. reading and, and memorizing the reactions until they got the head movement down. So the next thing they flick out the jab, the next thing they know the shin is like right where they're going to dip their head. So that, that sort of analysis. And once you get it pointed out, 
and the audience sees that, then it's like, oh, that aha moment of, oh, wow. And the appreciation of that becomes much more. I think they do a great part of actually highlighting the art yeah. part of mixed martial arts. Exactly. Now we just need to do them for them to do it in Chinese. <laughs> well, you get, you, get, you, get, you get someone uh, to do it in Chinese, yeah. I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know anyone that like, uh, is, is sort, of, you know, sort of ahead of that in that field in, in China right now. That actually might be an interesting sort of, um, sort of area to explore. I think that sounds. I think that is an interesting area to explore. I will also try to brush up on my Chinese. Okay. <laughs> Actually, final topic. So let's. Uh, you said fitness is a lifestyle. Um, I'd like to ask you, what do you think, with the with the uh, with the context that you know, technology is improving, we're all quite likely to live much longer than our uh, previous generations. Longevity is definitely on the cards. So lifespan will increase. Mm -hmm. But then there's this idea of kind of health span, right? Which is, you may live longer, but what kind of life will you have, right? And so for you, someone who's very well immersed in kind of the fitness, health, and wellness industry, someone who has spent a long, large part of his life kind of uh, adopting new skills, learning, trying to seek self-improvement, what do you think the components are of like a healthy lifestyle, a healthy life, oh. and meaningful life. <laughs> I think uh, being active is very important. I think that like uh, consistency of activity is quite important. Um, I, I'm a big believer in um, micro trauma. Like, you know, if I'm, I'm not, not trauma as in like sort of broken bones or sort of like, you know, getting your head like sort of like knocked in. I'm just like a, even micro trauma in the sense of like uh, regular jogging, having that Oh, sort of impact of your foot against the concrete and like sort of those like you know vibrations going into your bones basically it keeps your body sort of engaged where your um sort of like body's aware that it has to constantly be repairing itself you know at a constant state of repair mm -hmm. um so i think that like a consistency of activity is important uh that in it's it's not just you know through exercise i mean it's through work as well i mean how often is it the case that you see these people that work all their lives work really hard and they're sort of you know physically okay but the moment they retire suddenly all these problems start to come out health wise right they're like, oh now i'm now i'm sort of retired i'm not working anymore i'm doing nothing and suddenly you know you've heard this story many many times and i've observed it in sort of like uh you know older generation like uh that that sort of lack of activity mm -hmm. is really what sort of causes more problems to come up. So mm -hmm. I think consistency of activity, both from a work perspective and from, uh, from a physical activity perspective are, are very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the corollary to that is how do you prevent yourself from not being active? Um, that, that's critical as well. Mm -hmm. and, and getting injured is, is, is one, one major, if not the major sort of reason for, for not being active. Mm -hmm. And so preventive injury. And so there's, there's the, 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 the conscious decision to uh, not get injured. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so it can be you know, as simple as, you know, tapping earlier from jiu-jitsu context or, you know, not doing that double black diamond run at the end of the day, you know, when you know that your legs are already jelly. You know, sometimes you just have to be smart and, and make, the, make the decision to, to lower your risks and mm -hmm. to avoid injury. So that, that, that's very critical. And... Um, and, and, you know, the other one that I think probably is, you know, <laughs> makes a lot of sense that, you know, I, I'm going to say, but I don't do, 
um, is you know eat right and sleep a lot. Now that's 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 clearly like I think you know everyone knows that like you know having a good diet and sleeping enough is uh, is, is is probably one of the best. Um, sort of contributors to good health, uh, as well as uh, recovery. I so don't, hard to do though. I don't sleep nearly enough. I mean, I'm probably average like you know six hours, five six hours a day. And I know it's supposed to get like seven eight hours a day. So that's. <laughs> tell you what, the best way to fix that is uh, is to read this book by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. Yeah, He's basically yeah, a yeah, sleep scientist. Yeah. yeah. The minute you read that, you I'm yeah. going to go to bed right now. Exactly. I mean, the 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 the, ben, the, the sort of the downside of not sleeping enough is just so. Dramatic. I, it is dramatic. Yeah. I, I, you know, everyone has kind of a gut feel like, oh yeah, sleep would be better, but then the statistics get thrown at you. Like if you don't get enough sleep, mm-hmm. you know, everything bad to you happens. Yeah, exactly. Your chances of everything bad to you happening like so dramatically increases. Like, you know, decades get shaven off your life. But then on the flip side is, um, apparently, like, there's no better PED than sleep, like performance yeah. enhancing drug. You yeah. can take all the PEDs you want. Yeah. Compared to actually just getting consistent night's sleep, you'll yeah. get that same whatever it is two to three percent extra performance benefit exactly. just by yeah. making sure that you have good sleep hygiene and you kind of commit to that. It's a fascinating book, and also like um, sort of a lot of the myths about sleep. Yeah, uh, you can then catch up on sleep in small chunks. Or just sleep on the train, sleep on the car, you know, sleep on the plane. Yeah, you know, also like um, if it's uh, too warm, like how your body temperature reacts. Yeah. Like when you sleep, you know, it's much better to sleep in a cool sort of environment, a sort of warm environment. Yeah. I mean, the most interesting argument I had that, uh, that kind of hammered home to me is, you know, you, you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, right? Sleep is kind of a super stupid thing to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, you're going to take a third of your day and be completely defenseless, mm-hmm. you know, uh, open to predators uh, you know, leave your tribe sort of defenseless. We would only do that only if, only it because mission it's critical. <laughs> mission critical. It's <laughs> exactly. super freaking yeah. important. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things is about getting older and looking at sort of health span. Uh, and the way I've heard it sort of described as well is like different components, right? And it's maybe as simple as sort of mind, body, and spirit, right? So obviously with your body, Injury prevention, functional movement—you know, making sure that you still have sufficient, you know, strength and uh, and bone density. Um, things like on the mind, you know, cognitive function, processing power, uh, memory retention. Um, you know, trying to maintain all those things as you kind of get older. But I guess one of the other things that's sort of neglected by by most people is maybe on the spiritual side. You know, a little bit about, you know. You know, what is the state of your mind? What is, how do you find peace of mind? How do you uh, are able to deal with, you know, difficult situations in life and what impact that actually has on the quality of your health? Because as you say, you know, you see people who get older and uh, they have detrimental effects when they stop being active. And one of the reasons they stop being active is perhaps they get physically injured. But for a lot of them, one of the reasons they stop being active is their state of mind. So for you, like, how do you think about that? How do you think about, you know, what you've seen works? What do you think that you do in your daily life and as you get older to kind of maintain your, your state of mind? Um, you asked me a question earlier about sort of like uh, sort of you know, similarly along state of mind. Uh, and I talked a little about like Stoic philosophy and, and sort of faith. I think philosophy sort of like a, a worldview and faith um, 
are, are both sort of quite important because, uh, especially as I've gotten older, um, sometimes you, you get asked the, the big questions and you, you sort of start thinking more about life than just uh, are we here or just you know to basically um, you know, eat procreate and die you know and that's that's like there's got to be more meaning to it and i think that um there, there's so many um sort of things that point to our uniqueness as humans as as these constructs as these creations i think that that i think almost it behooves us to ask those questions and um i think that you know going back to sort of philosophy and faith as sort of uh tenets of part of leading a lifestyle, I think, that, that you can basically create a worldview around, um, you kind of have to ask the questions of yourself, what, what really um, suits you. And, and uh, I was talking a little about Stoic philosophy and sort of its parallels with like what we do on the mat and training and sort of like that sort of like a removal of negative emotion, looking things logically, um, basically inuring yourself to hardship through constant like um, putting yourself in these difficult situations. Um, uh, gratitude, having like a grateful mindset, and basically ex- accepting each day as it comes. Uh, I think that's, that helps from, uh, from a day-to-day perspective in terms of creating like the, the, a clean mindset and a clean sort of, um, sort of like a outlook on life so that you can deal with life's difficulties because life is going to be hard. It's, it's very rarely, actually, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a billionaire or you could be sort of, you know, struggling to make ends meet, but you know, the billionaire will have issues as well. They're going to also be sort of unhappy. I mean, there, there's no, I think, I don't, I don't think that like it's, it's, it's ever the case that the people will always be fully content. Sure. But, um, I I've think heard stoicism being described as like the, the best operating system that you can have to manage the modern world that we have in right now. Absolutely. I think there's a, there is that, you know, there's that sort of wisdom of ages. I mean, even if you want to, like, you know, use Buddhism as a philosophy as well, um, you know, desire is the root of all evil. Desire is the root of all suffering. And uh, to actually get rid of suffering, you have to rid yourself of desire. And then the, the how do you sort of seek that path? There's an eightfold path, you know, right thinking, right actions, et cetera, that can lead to the removal of desire. But the thing about both of these things, right, both like, you know, Stoic philosophy or, you know, Buddhist philosophy in terms of this self-improvement, this path of self-improvement, is that it's very much reliant on yourself. You have to seek sort of like, you know, like hammering out sort of all of like the, the weaknesses inside yourself, you have to better yourself. And while I think that's a great operating system and a great sort of philosophy to have day to day in terms of um, life principles, you know, and, and this also includes moral ethics, right? Because like a big part of Stoics is ethics uh, and virtue, how to li- live a virtuous life and a big part of you know, helping a fellow man. I think that doesn't necessarily affect, uh, that doesn't necessarily address the spirituality aspect of it. I think that like uh, your view on faith in terms of what you believe um, longer term in terms of why we're here and, you know, how we were put here um, and what it is that we're, we're meant to do, um, I think is, is important as well. And uh, it's a question that um, I think that everyone should at least spend time thinking about. You know, do you is there a God? Is not a God? Right? Is you know is there? Are you theist or are you atheist? All right. If you're theist, sometimes you're you know you believe in someone or you're agnostic. So you just don't know yet. Right? And then they're walking down the decision tree and logic tree of okay, fine, you're a theist. Are you pantheist? Are you monotheist? You know, are you polytheist? You know, and then what are the various sort of like like sort of worldviews out there and, and of faith that also adhere to your personal principles. 
And uh, for me, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm monotheistic. I believe uh, that, that there is a God. And I believe that um, we were put here for a purpose and that, like, uh, I believe in an afterlife as well. And so having that sort of at least thought process and going through it um, and, and also having sort of a support network, um, be it your church, be your small group, um, to sort of address your spiritual needs as well as, you know, having your, you know, your academy or sort of like your family to deal with like your, your physical or sort of like a social needs, uh, I think is very, very important and um, something quite lacking, I think, that in, in this world today. Um, I'm not saying that you have to, you know, like, you know, pound the table with a Bible and saying, believe, believe, believe. But it behooves us as, you know, who we are to actually ask those questions and seek your own answers, you know, or, or seek other people who can, you know, give you their views and their thoughts and, and, and share those answers. I think the important part there, <clears throat> well, I think the interesting part there is that is the, is the point about also just seeking other people out, mm-hmm. right? Like actually having you know, that sense of community and connection. Because I think there, there are a number of studies essentially to show, you know, what makes a happy, meaningful life in the long term. And essentially it all comes down to essentially how many connections that you have. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Harvard study, which I think is probably the most widely quoted um, around this topic specifically, you know, that more than any other sort of like factor, you know, sort of social status, earning, you know, number of like, you know, sort of cars or, you know, number of properties, size of your house, et cetera, et cetera. You know, as you pointed out, it's a number of connections, meaningful connections you have. This is an interesting one because, um, you know, there's this, uh, there's this like uh, statistic that shows that people who drink, tend to live a little bit longer than people that don't drink. And, and people are always going on about, oh, the health yeah. benefits of drinking. But I've always maintained it's social. It's not, it's not the alcohol. It's I agree. Just, I think that's a spurious cor- correlation that yeah, they're making. Pe- people, people that drink are just more social. Yeah. You have more sort of like, uh, you know, so these, these meaningful connections and therefore like you live longer. <laughs> yeah. What they need is a control test with all those guys who drink alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure those guys, you know, Let's have, see have their, if their they issues. live uh, an extra long life. I think another, I think another study has, has proven, disproven that, that like, uh, not that the people who drink don't, versus don't drink, but they have proven that people that, uh, that drink regularly will, will have, have physically shorter lifespans. But then, like, I think that the, there's an overriding sort of, like, uh, trumping of sort of that, like, physical detriment from the social connections over sort of, like, the, the downside of drinking. So, <laughs> so still drink, but drink socially. Uh, or drink in a social environment. Don't drink by yourself. Well, if, you, guess, uh, if, if, if our gym was to believe the, the path to a very long life is to, uh, is to roll a lot of jujitsu, form a lot of connections, and also just drink with all those guys, too. So, Well, then, then I think we're, we're definitely on the right path. Yeah, should, we're we're we going to live in, forever. We should include that, like, sort of uh, in, into our sort of, like, uh, mantra. That's actually, that almost ties into my, uh, my, my, my personal life sort of, like, interests. I, I like to drink. I like to drive. I like to fight. <laughs> but, but not in that order. <laughs> so, Well, it's interesting you choose all those, uh, those topics, but, like, that does seem... Yeah, that seems a very well-rounded take on what it takes to have a, like a healthy, long, meaningful life. Absolutely. And I think uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. I think uh, actually, so uh, for, for for everyone who's listening out there, uh, anything you want to share about uh, both DF Group or Shanghai BJ, where people can find you or the the gyms themselves? Well, I mean, you can come online to um, www.defgroup.co or uh, www.shbjjhk.com. 
uh, and check out our locations, both in China as well as in Hong Kong. Uh, please feel free to drop by at any of our locations. Um, shoot us an email or like a, a message uh, via Facebook, um, whatever, before you come over. And we'd love to invite anyone to, to come and try out fitness's lifestyle. I think that's great. great. Thank you very much. much. Cheers, great. guys. Thank you, guys.